morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to Thornville Baptist Church's worship service for Sunday, April 5th, 2020. We're broadcasting again live from Pastor's Home, as we will probably for the foreseeable future. Um, not many announcements. Uh, again, uh, you can send your tithe uh, to Starla uh, directly, uh, so we can limit the amount of travel uh, for our people. Uh, send it directly to the mail to Starla, and she'll take care of that for us. Uh, other than that, I don't think I have any extra announcements. No? Okay, so we'll begin our uh, service with Scripture for Meditation, which is Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. Again, Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. Before we uh, begin our service, I did fail to, to mention that if you're watching on Sermon.net, it's also being simulcast on Facebook, should there be some problems back and forth, either service should be up and running. And of course, we welcome any feedback, especially if the services go down, and we'll work at trying to get them to go back up uh, as best we can uh, during the, the service. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we are thankful for every day of life that you grant to us. And we are thankful knowing that you are the architect of every day. This is the day that you have made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. No matter what the circumstances come, you are still king and lord and sit on the throne and rule and reign amidst the seeming chaos of the events that are happening in our world. We know, Lord, that you have ordained these things to pass and you are controlling the spread uh, of this virus and it is doing exactly what you have designed and planned for it to do. We do pray for those who may be watching who are currently suffering from the effects of this virus, Lord, that you would grant grace and mercy. And to our world in general, Lord, grace and mercy amidst the, the judgment of this virus. And I pray, Lord, that uh, through, uh, through the devastation that, that we are experiencing as a, as a planet, uh, that people's minds would be turned to you and that uh, the gospel would go forth in great power and that, Lord, you would save sinners. We thank you for the opportunity to meet uh, via technology. Uh, we are not collected physically, but I pray that our spirits are united 
And I pray, Lord, that you will bless uh, every aspect of our service. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen. Fill my cup, Lord, is the first hymn this morning. Scripture reading this morning is James 5, verses 1 through 16. James 5, verses 1 through 16. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. 
Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. second hymn today is My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. My faith has found a resting place From guilt my soul is free I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me shall bleed. I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Enough for me. soul I come to him he'll never cast me by my Savior's name, salvation. 
Last Lord's Day, we studied confident faith. Believers begin with no faith because the faith that trusts God for life and living is found in no one. God must give it before it can be used. God gives faith through the preaching of the Word of Christ. And it's faith, not intellectual prowess, for this is the way that people find God. It's not that faith is unreasonable, but rather that faith discovers what intelligence rejects. The God of all wisdom is not a paltry discovery. To know God places us miles ahead of our contemporaries in understanding and wisdom. We learn that faith can be small. Faith can also be weak. But it still accomplishes much if the object of the faith is God and His Son, Jesus. There's an old song written by Kitty J. Suffield, whose husband was an evangelist in the holiness movement of the 1900s. And the chorus of the song says this, Little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown, and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. Secondly, we learn that the faith that is small and weak can and must grow and mature. It can become extraordinary faith, standing for Christ amidst severe trial, persevering and not giving up. This is the way faith needs to live itself out in our lives. But today I want to talk about introspective faith. That is, faith that is misdirected. As we come to our study, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word teaches us itself that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So, Lord, as we study your word, grant us the faith to believe and to function on faith that you might be honored and glorified and that we might receive those good blessings that you have in faith in store for those who trust you. We ask this for your glory and our good. Amen. We're looking today at introspective faith, or what I would call faith that is misdirected. Now, first of all, I want to talk about hoarding the wealth. 
You say, what do you mean by that? Well, when James wrote the opening challenge of chapter 5 in his book, this is what he wrote. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth is rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. When James said that, I'm convinced that he was addressing people with large bank accounts whose faith was in their portfolios and not in God. James was obviously talking about real money because he says in verse 3, Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. We read that, and normally we don't think of gold and silver as precious metals that corrode. Oh yeah, silver tends to tarnish. But even so, it does not lose any of its value because of that. And gold is found bright and shiny even in its raw form. So what was James talking about? Well, he was describing people who had been greatly blessed of God, who had much in terms of resources, who could have done a lot of good with their holdings if they had had a mind to do it. But instead, verse 4 says these rich failed to pay their workers their due wages for work rendered. It also says God had heard the cries of these unpaid and many harvesters. Verse 5 says these wealthy had lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. In other words, getting fatter by the moment. And verse verse 7 says that murder and death had occurred on the innocent because of the wealthy's greed. We're likely to say a hearty amen to all this because of the current economic crisis of our own country fostered upon us, yes, by the greedy wheeler-dealers of Wall Street. We think the Wall Street fat cats fill the bill of James' description in this letter. But I want you to consider a different scenario, one which also has to do with wealth, but not with money. I'm referring to us as God's people who have been gifted by God with the knowledge of the truth, who have heard and responded to the gospel, who are saved and heaven-bound, and who in many ways are what James described earlier, saying, Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who love Him. James 2, verse 5. You know, to be rich in faith is also to be granted a great depository of wealth for which we are held accountable in our stewardship. The Bible ever shows that there is where this is where real riches lie. For example, the psalmist writes, do not be overawed when a man grows rich, when the splendor of his house increases, for he will take nothing with him when he dies. His splendor will not descend with him. Though while he lived, he counted himself blessed, and men praise you when you do prosper, he will join the generation of his fathers who will never see the light of life, 
A man who has riches without understanding is like the beasts that perish. Psalm 49, verse 16 and following. Or Solomon put it this way, A faithful man will be richly blessed, but one eager to get rich will not go unpunished. To show partiality is not good, yet a man will do wrong for a piece of bread. A stingy man is eager to get rich and is unaware that poverty awaits him. Proverbs 28, verse 20 and following. Or remember what Paul told Timothy. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to be to, to do that which is good. To be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 and following. Even as the materially rich in James 5 hoarded their assets and deprived people of help when they could afford to give, so we as God's people are rich spiritually and may yet be found hoarding the richness of the gospel for needy souls. It's a thought to keep in mind. There's a revelation in the book of Revelation. In the opening chapters of the last book of the Bible, Jesus, through his prophet John, addressed seven real geographical churches. I want to look at just two this morning. In chapter 2, James encourages, Jesus rather, encourages the church of Smyrna, saying, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Revelation 2, verse 9 and 10. Wow, think about that. The crown of life. Our Lord clarified the issue. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, verse 28. Smyrna was indeed rich. We would all love to fall into this spiritual category. We do not like the idea of persecution, but the promise of eternal life when the day is done is very encouraging, and it fills us with hope. But what is very disturbing is what Jesus said of the church of Laodicea, the second church I want us to consider. He said of this church, You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth, and I don't need anything. 
But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline so be earnest and repent. Revelation 3 verse 17 and following. These are the spiritually blessed who have left their silver and their gold tarnish. They are the holders of the gospel light who have not given it out to a world crying out to God in the darkness. Instead, they have hoarded their wealth. People have died while they have lived in luxury. People have been impoverished while they have fattened themselves with self-indulgence. Theirs has been an introspective faith, a self-serving faith, a faith that is content to say, I do not need a thing. They have it all, they think. But God questions their genuineness, saying, Be earnest and repent. You know, brethren, when the church becomes a safe haven instead of a mission station, For the gospel, something is drastically wrong. Yet this too often is where we are. We see church as our personal hideaway from the world, our retreat, our comfort zone. And we kind of like it that way. We want no one to rock the boat, so to speak. We want to sing the hymns we love and nothing else. We want the liturgy to flow like clockwork with no deviation in form or function. We're ignorant, however, that God does not visit such places. God never intended that our faith should be directed inward for our own peace of mind, nor that it should become static. One of my professors at Westminster, John Miller, wrote a little uh, booklet called Outgrowing the Ingrown Church. And on page 20, he, re- he wrote this. The local church was intended by Jesus to be a gathering of people full of faith, strong in their confidence in him, not a gathering of religious folk who desperately need reassurance. Good words from Professor Miller. When we gather as God's church, we need to encounter Christ. And it is faith that lays hold of him. Church is not to become simply a preaching station where we come to get a shot of spiritual B12 for the soul and then go home till the next Sunday. So I'm asking the question to this morning, are we hoarding our spiritual wealth? Is your faith active? Is it alive? Could God's spirit ever break through and surprise you? Or do you have him all boxed in so that nothing soul enlightening can occur? Jesus promised, whoever believes, so he's talking about faith, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water 
will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And up to that time the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. John 7, verse 38 and 39. So the promise here is that God's Spirit will empower us as we, and it's in the present tense, as we believe in, and the idea is as we believe in and keep on believing in Christ. Spirit empowerment, all that goes with that, stops when you stop believing because it is faith that pleases God. And stagnant or inward-focused faith is self-confidence, which dethrones God and elevates you. That's never good. The moment you stop trusting God, you start trusting yourself, and when that occurs, the spirit is quenched and grieved, and the living water dries up to a little rocky stream bed with a little trickle of its former glory. This is what breeds discouragement in you as a Christian. This is why church workers become weary in doing what's good. This is why some sit in the sidelines and never put their hands to the plow. These are all characteristics of an introspective faith. So with the time that I have, I would like to talk about some of the symptoms of an introspective church, a church that is always looking within itself. Do you see us more like the church in Acts, outgoing preaching the gospel, going from city to city, or more like the church at Corinth? Are we spiritual as a church, or are we carnal? Are we growing in love and grace, or are we stagnating? Do you see personal spiritual growth in your own life? What sins have you repented of lately? Is there renewal of your relationship with Christ? Would the world see by your behavior that you truly love Jesus? By your behavior now, not just your words, but by your behavior. So, we're, let's talk for a few minutes of some of the symptoms of an introspective church. Number one, an introspective church has spotlight vision with literal peripheral acuity. So what do you mean by that? Well, you guys know that out on the front lawn of our building, there is a, erected a flagpole in loving memory of Mr. Westfall by his family. On the flag itself and on the other side of the facade, to give balance, there are two spotlights. They do a pretty reasonably good job of illuminating those areas where the beam hits you can stand there at night and see the colors, the stars, the stripes of the flag. You can see the scallop decorations of the cedar shakes below the rose window of the building. But, but, as one begins to walk towards the rear of the building, the light begins to dissipate and within ten or so feet, the detail of the architecture is obscure and indistinguishable. Few would be able to see the paint peeling, for example, on the windowsills or the weeds growing under the plexiglass window well covers. 
Faith which is introspective in the body of Christ is spotlight vision, which only has an eye for ministries of the church which can be accomplished by the visible human resources presently in place. What I am saying is we see what we do well. We see what we can pay for. We see what has worked in the past. We remind ourselves of the times we have failed, and then we determine our future course of action by that retrovision. Anything that is peripheral to the spotlight of the here and now focus cannot be seen nor appreciated. Now call it what you will, but this is nothing less than a classic case of unbelief and a quenching of the power of the Spirit through the sin of doubt. And it isn't long then before we begin to resign ourselves to the status quo. We become content with dullness in worship as normal, numerical growth as impossible, our tradition becomes sacrosanct, and we question anything that might not conform to the vision of comfort that we have all grown to see and revere. Jesus taught, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. And you may ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. John 14, verse 12 and following. Now, introspective faith does not believe that. It doesn't have the peripheral vision to see that. This is patently obvious when indifference sets into the truth that people without Christ are lost and in danger of perishing without a true witness of the gospel. You say, well, I pray for the lost, I pray for my family, I pray for my friends. Yes, that's the spotlight of your involvement. But unless you challenge them with the gospel, then your prayers are but the desperate cry of people who have lost faith in the gospel's power to transform those lives. You're hoping for a miracle from God to save them. Salvation without the truth that sets men free. Well, it won't happen. It'll never happen. We believe the first part of the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. But we do not have the faith in the promise of that commission. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. Well, guess what? We are at the end of the age. Is God still with us? Or has He abandoned us? Is He still saving the lost? Or have we given up on his command? We just have a spotlight and have we forgotten the peripheral vision to see the big picture. What are some of the symptoms of an introspective church? Well, let me suggest some. An introspective church 
evidences itself in a consensus among the people of superiority. Superiority. This kind of church becomes happy with themselves as compared to, let's say, other churches. Content because it has the truth, preaches the truth, has not adopted liberal tendencies, and so on. It emphasizes its strength so that it doesn't have to look at its weaknesses. It plays up the pluses so it doesn't have to face the negatives. And brethren, let me say there are always negatives, and we need faith to see them as well. The top billboard song of 1945, now think about this, 1945, World War II, was a song by Johnny Mercer with this chorus. You got to accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, and latch on to the affirmative, and don't mess with Mr. In-Between. Great promotion of the theory of the power of positive thinking. But you know, it does little for people who want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Churches which only accentuate the positive while eliminating the negative develop an elitist aura concerning themselves. They begin to feel pretty good about their performance, boasting in their achievements. But Christ is offended and abandoned such because the Bible affirms that the Spirit of Christ resides with the humble of heart and opposes the proud. In the words of Paul, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power, that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians 3, verse 20 and 21. And Paul's personal testimony was this. I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Romans 15, verse 17 and following. So may it become our mission as well to glory in Christ and not so much to rest on our laurels. Whatever we are is by God's grace and by His grace we have much more to do. Thirdly, the introspective church is hypersensitive to negative criticism. Let me say that again. The hypersensitive church, or the introspective church, rather, is hypersensitive to negative criticism. We read last week from Hebrews 10 that confident faith does not shrink back from God and our confidence in Him just because persecution or insults come from others. Let me read it again, Hebrews 10, verse 39. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. I want us to observe that this is not that self-confidence we spoke of earlier, which is sin. No, 
This affirmation is based on the previous verse, my righteous one will live by faith, and reference to faith in God. But having said that, the introspective church member is easily put off and defeated by negative criticism. He or she will shrivel up, blow away at the first sign of opposition. Some will say, well, you know, Pastor, I'm not very confrontational. And my answer to that is some things are worth fighting for. Jesus did not roll over and play dead when the Pharisees accused him of doing miracles by the power of the devil, nor when they abused their position by oppressing the poor and the widows. If you don't stand for righteousness among your family, and you don't stand for righteousness among your friends, I mean, who will? Think about this. But make sure that your stand is righteous, as the Bible defines such, and not just your own opinion. We don't need opinions. We need, thus saith the Lord. God hasn't called you to set everyone straight, bring them into conformity to your views. A highly know-it-all person can crush timid souls, can stunt their spiritual growth, all in the name of trying to help. But the tendency need to learn to stand on their spiritual two feet and not cave in at the slightest opposition. And that's what I'm talking about. To be terrified by fear is a sign of defective love. If the world needs anything these days, it needs to see a church characterized by vibrant love. And love tells the truth. In fact, Paul writes, love rejoices with the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. This is not a green light to be obnoxious as we speak to others. Certainly not that. I'm not talking about that. But it is the responsibility to lovingly tell folks that we love that their sin will kill them in the end and ruin their lives in the present. Every sinner thinks he or she is A-OK the way he or she lives. They have no clue as to the weight of God's wrath hanging over their head. If you're more concerned about being perceived in a good light rather than faithful to God as his ambassador of truth, then you're introspective and self-serving. This lack of a living faith is what stagnates churches collectively and hinders them from realizing their full potential because they will not risk change. What am I saying? I'm saying that tradition is their God. It's comfortable. Tradition is comfortable. It's non-threatening. It requires no research, no thought, no new direction. There is an offense inherent in the gospel. And we need to be willing to bear that. Now, I'm not saying that we need to practice being obnoxious. No. But if we just give the gospel as it is stated in the scriptures, it's going to be offensive to people. And we need to be ready for that. Number four, the introspective church strives to be a nice place to worship God, the introspective church. 
By nice, I mean a pleasant place, a place of tranquility, a church with a nice pastor preaching a nice message about a nice Savior in pleasant tones to nice people on a nice Sunday morning. Nothing wrong necessarily with having the reputation for being kind and considerate and gentle with people who come our way. The Spirit of God does conform us to the character of Jesus as he ministered to people. But Jesus was not always peaches and cream. Sometimes he was fire and brimstone especially when people's souls were at stake. It's not being nice to let people think all is well with their soul when it's not. Much of Jesus' ministry was to cause people to think about their relationship to God. And to do that, he did not water down their sin. There are churches in our day that will not speak of sin or repentance or forgiveness, or restoration, nor of judgment, nor of God's wrath. Nothing is said of hell for those who do not repent, and on and on it goes. They have reinvented the gospel as surely as the school textbook authors have rewritten history to smooth over the bloody and turbulent times of our past. They want to downplay the negatives that they see in Christianity. Well, let me say, you cannot get to forgiveness and restoration of favor with God without first dealing with the blood on your hands. God told his people through Isaiah, listen to what he said. He said, stop bringing meaningless offerings. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. And even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. We read that and we say, why not, God? We're we're bringing the animal sacrifices you commanded, along with the incense that you ordained. Our prayers ascend like smoke to the heavens. Why will you not respond favorably? And God answers, and I'm reading his words, Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Isaiah 1, verse 13 and following. What's that? It's a call to repentance. You know, we have to get past the nice and deal with the bloody hands before God will have anything to do with us. God does not turn a blind eye to our sin like we do. He sees it all. And he obviously is not impressed with the sacrificial gifts we bring to the altar, nor the copious amounts of pious prayers that we pray. The reason people need salvation is because they're lost. The thing which makes them lost is their deep sin. It is an injustice to God to represent him as Mr. Nice Guy, as the love daddy in the sky, so to speak, 
He's the King of glory, perfect in all of His ways, holy and exalted above the heavens, of purer eyes than even to look upon sin, the Scripture says. And Jesus, His Son, is not the effeminate, namby-pamby, hippie guru philosopher so many imagine Him to be. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the one who in righteous anger made a whip and drove the merchants out of the temple court of his day because they had made his father's house a den of thieves and a house of merchandise. What I am saying is Jesus is not nice when it comes to willful sin. He is not a tame or safe God. We do not get to remake him by emasculating him. It is not safe to view Jesus through rose-colored glasses. The writer of Hebrews tells of Moses' reaction when God confronted him on Sinai. The scripture says the sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. So writes the writer of Hebrews. And he goes on to write to his people, But you have come, you my people, to whom I am writing, you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem. See, not an earthly mountain. You have come to the city of the living God. You have come to God, the judge of all men. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it, see to it, that you do not refuse him who speaks. I mean, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably, what? With reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, verse 21 and following. Let me say, brethren, Jesus is that judge Jesus is that consuming fire. But I can tell you, and I do tell you, that there is love in Christ for every sinner who repents. Every trembling soul need not fear to approach Jesus on his throne. Come as you are. Crawl if you have to. This king has the power to pardon as well as to condemn. And for all who repent of their sin and seek His forgiveness, there is full and final pardon with no parole to delay His grace, no penance on your part to make amends. God has done it all. He simply commands you to repent and believe what He has done. God's promise in His own words is this. Let me read it for you. It's from the book of Isaiah. God says, let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him 
to our God, for he will freely pardon. Isaiah 55, verse 7. May I say that that turning to God is you exercising the little faith God has deposited in your heart. So today, if you hear God's call, come confidently. Come as you are. Come believing, and God will make you his child. To every professing Christian this morning, are you a person with introspective faith? Faith that looks inward instead of upward? Faith in self rather than faith in God? I put the word in quotes, faith in quotes, because it really isn't faith at all, is it? It's unbelief. It's crippling you and giving a false peace, robbing you of true salvation and the joy that goes with it. So I'm calling on you to repent, to get real with God. The day is short. Nighttime is approaching. Judgment is coming. Let us trust in what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have done it all. You've just commanded us to believe that you've done it. You're not asking us to contribute to it. Even the faith that we're required to exhibit is faith that's given by you to us. Not carnal faith. People have that. But the spiritual faith, the saving faith that trusts Jesus and only him. Help us to rely solely upon what you've done for us. And may I say we love you, dear Christ, for what you've done. We don't say that enough. We love you for what you've done and for what you continue to do by way of your Holy Spirit. Wooing us, bringing us, convicting us, granting us repentance and faith to trust you. I pray that you will drive those things home in our hearts. May we be the witness that stands for the gospel. May we give out the gospel. Not just praying for our loved ones, but giving them the word that they need to hear in order to believe. They're not reading their Bibles. They have Bibles, but they're not reading them. So the only word they're going to hear is what word we give them. And we don't need to give them our opinion. We don't need to try to uh, outsmart them in some kind of argument or discourse. We need to give them, Thus saith the Lord. And when they hear God's word... God will grant the faith that's needed to respond. For your glory, for our good, we pray these things. Amen. The final hymn this morning is My Faith Looks Up to Thee.
hatred and griefs around me spread be thou my guide be in darkness turn to day wipe sorrow's tears away nor let me ever stray from thee God's people said, Amen. Amen. We are dismissed.